Girlfriend, we need to talk. Conversations with Outstanding Women. Karen Sugar is on the phone from California today. Hello, Karen. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm good. Karen is the Executive Director of Women's Global Empowerment Fund, which is a nonprofit organization that she founded in 2007. So there is like, I love anything to do with women's empowerment, especially on a global scale. I mean, this really excites me. So I'd love to hear how you came to this super important work. Um, Okay, well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. Um, I have always worked with women and poverty issues pretty much my whole life, inside the political system, outside of the political system, um, social justice and gender justice has been thing, uh, have been issues that have been very important to me since I was, you know, like in high school. <laughs> and so I worked in a homeless shelter in Atlanta, Georgia, for several years. Um, I worked around reproductive rights um, organizing, and I actually had some important legislation passed through a campaign that I developed that was really interesting. And so I have this really interesting body of work. It's always been in the United States. Um, and then I went back to graduate school because I really, I, I felt like the world had really expanded and everything was global, right? So I went back to graduate school to try and understand the world and these issues um, through uh, um, kind of a, a bigger lens, right? Through a global lens. Right. So um, while I was kind of focused on environmental policies at that point, I got pulled back into gender and development and I was introduced you know, in a class, everyone was sleeping but me, or, you know, I was probably dozing. But um, I was introduced to the concept of microfinance in, in this film that one of my professors showed. And, you know, this was 2005, so microfinance wasn't new at that point, um, but I had not heard of it. So I became really interested and curious about it and um, the potential for transformation and opportunities women, especially in the global South with this, with this uh, concept. So I really started diving into it and um, I just became really passionate about it, very intrigued and kind of committed to it, not the economic, just the economic potential of it, but what is possible when you um, combine it with um, critical social programming as well. And that for me was where I wanted to commit my time and energy to um for me to commit like for me to create a capitalistic endeavor is that's not that is not my skill set i'm i'm not necessarily a capitalist by nature so that was a big learning curve for me right um i mean i have to have my calculator out to do simple math so (laughs) to actually create that part of it was like um really like a, a heavy lift but It's such a, you know, I kept it simple. I knew that what I wanted to do was to create a really impactful, transparent, uh, grassroots-based organization um, that had really good outcomes for women and families. That that was my goal. And so the the economic piece is super important, Uh but it's also what we what we combine that opportunity with has really been like creating the sustainable empowerment that's 
kind of how I coin it. Instead of development, I use empowerment. Right. So we really have created sustainable empowerment on the ground there in very, very meaningful ways. Oh, man, I love this. I'm going to, I have lots of questions so, that have just come into my mind over all of I this. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy because, you know, I had never been to Africa, let alone Uganda. I decided to go into a post-conflict region that I, you know, that was just very tender coming out of a very brutal conflict, like extraordinarily brutal. And, uh, you know, I think everyone thought I was nuts, but no <laughs> one said it. So I was just like, okay, well, I'm going to do it. And, you know, uh, even my professors, they were all really supportive. And, you know, later on, they said, well, we never thought it would actually happen. Like, <laughs> we thought it was crazy. Like, people tell me that. And I'm like, well, why didn't you say that then? You know, so thank goodness they didn't, because I may have overthought it. I may have, you know, gotten nervous or, or whatever, because I really did take a leap of faith. Right. You know. So it's the classic question that always comes with the, why didn't you tell me before, is um, the answer I usually hear is, well, would you have listened? No. I well, and there you go. Sure. <laughs> so why did you choose Uganda? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, you know, that was kind of like the last really important piece of the puzzle for me was where to land this organization. I didn't want to be another... Um, uh, you know, traditional aid scheme in a, a country that already had millions of aid, you know, organizations working. I didn't want an ad, just add, you know, I wanted to, to go somewhere where it was actually needed and important. And so, you know, I, I studied in Paraguay for a bit with a microfinance uh, um, organization there, and I learned a lot. And I was kind of looking at Latin America, and I found that it was so, it was already overrun with microfinance endeavors. Gotcha. And, uh, and then, I, you know, Southeast Asia just wasn't, I mean, India has like for every, I don't know, 1,200 people, there's an NGO. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really, like I knew so much about the NGO world that helped me to make a, a decision, that helped me make this decision, right? So uh, at that time, Africa was just not getting the attention of, um, innovative organizations or microfinance initiatives at that time. And so I was introduced to this guy from, uh, who worked at CU Denver where I was going to school, who was from Northern Uganda. And he really educated me about his country and, and the country was just coming out of this long, you know, 30 year brutal con- uh, conflict. And I read a, a bunch of UN reports and I had, cause I was in grad school. I had a lot of good, you know, access to, and materials and brains. And um, I decided that's where uh, on the planet at that time, that is where women needed this kind of program the most. Right. So it didn't matter to me where it was. Like I learned a long time ago that as women, we are all connected by many of the same experiences walking the planet because we're women. And um, so I think that's what gave me the, um, uh, that's what gave me the confidence to go and realize that I do have something to offer, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm where you were in, in about 2005. Um, number one, I probably need two calculators, but the other thing is I have never heard, of, I've never heard of microfinance. So can you give us a, yeah. like a little short tutorial on what exactly that is? 
Oh, so microfinance is providing very small loans to people that don't have access to traditional banking and loan uh, uh, interventions. All right. So um, most, it's usually in the global south. It's really big in many parts of the world. Unfortunately, it started in the late 90s, and Muhammad Yunus um, in Bangladesh was like the, the creator of this village banking idea. And it, it's unfortunately become very co-opted and, and corrupted because a lot of banks have become involved. Oh, no. And it, no. it can now be a for-profit endeavor as opposed to a non-profit endeavor. Right. And so it, was, it's very, it can be very sketchy. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. When do, if you do it well, if it's done well, it can be really successful and um, empowering. If you don't do it well, it leaves people more impoverished and in debt. So, you know, I had to be really careful about the model that I created um, to make sure that none of that happened, right? right. So, like, in, Mex- in Mexico and, and a couple other countries and in India, they actually had to shut down microfinance because it became so corrupted. Oh, man. And um, they were, you know, 70% interest rate. 80, 100% interest rate in, in Mexico and in other, in other places that do microfinance in India and Bangladesh. And uh, I mean, it's really sad. It's really sad. Profiting off the back of the poorest of the poor is the worst. It's just not amoral. It's not okay. And it really took this idea of, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors, uh, you know, opportunities for people that, you know, to actually create something for themselves so they can become sustainable. Um, you know, it became something really ugly. And <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I kind of came into it at that point. Right. And so I knew better, you know, and I knew that that was, I had no interest in creating a for-profit endeavor or to make any money whatsoever, and, which we don't. So <laughs> right, right. there you go. <laughs> All right. But, so, but we've given out over 19,000 loans and wow. we have not had one default. Wow. And yeah. Like ev- all the loans have been paid back. We only loan money to women in a borrowing group, anywhere from four to 15 women. And then our agriculture loan program functions a little bit differently, but still a group model. So I threaded this leadership development and uh, part of it, like throughout the whole, every program from the beginning, when a woman walks into our office with her borrowing group, they have to elect leadership of that group, right? Women that really want leadership opportunities and educational opportunities, it's there for them. And so we have over 570 women serving in leadership positions across the Northern region right now. Wow. That's I mean, that to me is the most outstanding outcome I've ever heard from a small organization. Yeah. That's right. Like 570 women serving in leadership positions. And that is everything from like the local tribal community leader through the national election for regional positions. Right. Like it is truly amazing. And I'm probably the most proud of that because what I know is true is that if women don't have a seat at the table and aren't a part of policy development, that nothing changes. Exactly. I'm, I'm super intrigued by this part because I actually do leadership development. That's my, you know, air quotes, day job is doing leadership development. Yeah. So I'm, 
I'm really intrigued by this part of it and how that translates to, I, I mean, is it is it the same issues across the board, regardless of differences in culture, or what, what do you see? Yeah, I mean, I really think so. I, you know, what I learned working in the shelter, like, a long time ago, that as women, you know, we all face the same kind of challenges, right? Um, yeah. Whether it's health challenges, accessing health challenges, raising healthy families, but mm-hmm. also misogyny and discrimination and gender-based violence. You know, we, we have issues with the, that here. It just looks different, right? Right. right. Um, but the same issues, you know, discrimination um, and gender-based violence is definitely two issues that prevent women from moving forward, from participating. So <clears throat> we focus on that. We have an access to justice initiative that really focuses on um, women who face breakages in the justice chain. It is truly one of the most amazing programs I've ever seen. And that is not me. Like I took the training there. I trained 18 women at the end of the day, we had an action plan and they just took it and ran with it. And it has become this really beautiful, impactful endeavor. Wow. um, Where they are, they are mediating property disputes, they are uh, mediating and ensuring that women get justice around violence and family issues. And also they're uh, mediating family issues around child marriage, which is, you know, a huge problem. So, you know, this access to justice team is recognized by like the national, you know, national organizations that work with justice. They've developed an entire referral system for, we have a 24 hour toll free hotline there. Um, where women can call in. We have a buddy system, so women will go with you when you have, you know, because a lot of times women are just intimidated. They're yeah. not taken seriously. Right. Um, we have a buddy system. Um, we have money available for small fees. Sometimes women, and, and men as well, if you're poor and you don't have access, sometimes you don't even have, you can't copy your documents to bring to authority to file a report. Right. God, like yeah. just even small things like that. So, you know, we we provide copying services, you know, things like that. It's it's the spectrum. It really is. But as you you know, I'm sure are aware, women have unique challenges when accessing justice. They're not taken seriously. You know, they're oftentimes humiliated. Um, they there's a lot of shame around if it's it, it includes like some sort of sexual assault, you know. So coming forward is uncomfortable enough. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of things, you know, there's a lot of things that women face when accessing justice that, you know, that is part of our core leadership initiative is these women have become a fierce team of legal advocates. And wow. it is amazing. That is, amazing. I mean, it's, it's incredible when you consider what the, what the, their situation was like, um, oh. you know, prior to this. Yeah. Um, I was reading about it's the Lord's Resistance Army that had that 30 year reign of absolute terror uh, that I don't think people can even. I was just I literally was reading last night and I'm out loud. I'm saying, wow. I mean, this is they what they had abducted over like 67,000 youth and 30,000 children who were used as child soldiers, sex slaves. Right. And sex slaves, yeah, and, and you know, a lot of the girls, a lot of the, the girls that were abducted, you know, came back as young women, teenagers, with with children, Ugh. and then 
they were kind of ostracized again because people were so fearful. Um, now, this was in the beginning. This is not happening now. Right. This is, you know, 10 years in. The, the, the region is peaceful and has been. The LRA has really been kind of dismantled, and they're, they're, I think they're in the CAR, and every once in a while they crop up and abduct people or kill, you know, kill people. Um, but they've been out of Uganda. Uganda made a commitment to keeping their borders secure and ridding that region um, of the LRA. Now, they, you know, it, it's more complicated than just the LRA because the, the government and, and the, the, the um, president, you know, kind of abandoned the northern people right. um, because they're more tribal. Um, I think one of the, the interesting things is that the region had not grown food for over 30 years, and it's a beautiful place to grow food. It's, it's, you know, temperate climate, you don't need irrigation, um, amazing soil. And so we have, you know, a, created an entire local food economy from growers to distributors to suppliers to distributors. Um, and we're now feeding not just the region, but into almost the whole country, into South Sudan. Um, and so our women farmers have really, really changed uh, the food security issues that they were facing post-conflict, right? That's awesome. And that started in 2010. And that's been an amazing thing to, to watch as well. Women are the farmers in Africa in general. That's huh. just, you know, and um, yeah, men do very little farming work. It, it's really the women that are the farmers and the keepers of the seeds. And they've been able to kind of, you know, keep it best practices, no pesticides, organic. Um, you know, kind of, they've been able to stay away from big agro business, which is always so incredible. Besides the farming piece, are there businesses that they get, that they start or get involved with or products? Farming is only a third of our, uh, like, loan portfolio. So, because... You know, it's dangerous to have just ag because climate chaos and, and things like that, you know, crop failures, different things. So, and we didn't start ag until 2010. So we have uh, women start, I mean, in the beginning, it was selling fruits and vegetables in the market, little stands, maybe some clothes. But now we have women that have opened restaurants and small oh. hotels and beauty shops and food service industry. Um well, anything you can imagine, we have clients that have done it, right? And and these are big, sophisticated businesses now. Um, I mean, we still have women in the market selling fruits and vegetables and all kinds of things as well. But, you know, some of the businesses have become really, really sophisticated. Um, you know, people are hiring people. I think one of the first times that I knew I had made it successful was I and this was in the beginning I visited this woman who had a hair braiding business and a tailoring business at her home and we went to visit and on one side of her front porch is a sewing machine and the tailor and then the other side is the hair braiding business where she had a line like around the building wow and (laughs) she so I was telling her you know we were having this conversation and she said to me she goes you know now I hire people and now they're eating and their families are people. 
And for me, this was like seven years ago, but I was like, done, done. That's like, it. This is awesome. Absolutely. That's, that's, yeah. Right. And, and when you work in really poor countries or really vulnerable communities, um, who are oftentimes recovering from a natural disaster, from a conflict, you know, you have to really celebrate these kinds of outcomes as well, right? Yes. Are you kidding? That's phenomenal. It must be so rewarding yeah. just to see. I mean, empowerment shows when someone's in a position where they can now have control over their yeah. own life. Yes. That's and so like inspiring. women bring us gifts at the office all the time. Oh. You know, it just shows that people are doing well and they want to share. And it's, it's really lovely. So how much? I've been given several chickens. So yeah, that's, that's always fun when they that's bring me a chicken, and it's like, oh my god, I have to take it off. No, yeah, that's the funniest part. I think they do it now just so they can watch me um, freak out, you know, get squeamish over having to hold this live chicken. No. Anyway, how often do you go there? You said you have an office there. Um, we have an office there. It's I only hire Ugandan people, right? Um. So we have a fantastic staff of seven. I'm the same program manager that I have worked with since our pilot project, um, who I had never met until my first trip there in 2008. Um, she didn't even have Skype then, right? So I, like, we had never actually visually seen each other, you know, except in like some photos. Right. And uh, yeah, they're all well-educated, committed young people who want an opportunity to work in their country, really? right? So one of the problems with some of the African countries who are moving forward with education and other development um, um, issues is that you have all these really young people that are now educated, staying in their country, getting an education in the fantastic African universities that there are in, in many countries. But then when they come out, there's not any jobs. Right. And, you know, that was something else that I wanted to make sure that I was, you know, also creating sustainable empowerment and opportunities to those people as well. You know, so we don't buy, we source everything in the country or the region. And then we also, you know, I, we only hire people that are Ugandan. Brilliant. And I think that makes us, you know, between the political um, you know, the political programs and the focus on, and on that. And then also that, uh, uh, philosophy, I think it makes us like really unique. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm curious, what has the, been, the reaction been with Ugandan men over the empowerment of all of these women? Good, bad, <laughs> indifferent? <laughs> I mean, you know, because I had never been there and I went there kind of thinking like, these guys are going to hate me, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're going to, you know, they're going to not be friendly. And, you know, that was not the case. I mean, obviously there are some tribal leaders and some older, you know, gentlemen who want nothing to do with women's empowerment, not interested in that. Um, we have that and there here. Are some husbands. Yeah, exactly. They're everywhere. Uh-huh. Yes. I don't make me go there. We're not talking that. that okay, okay. All right. That's another, people that's another calls, interview. People, yeah. Yeah. Another interview. Um, I, you know, so, you know, you have, we have a very uh, narrow version of how we, uh, 
how we see African men. You know, we think of them as like violent and sexist and, you know, um, stubborn and all kinds of things. And I will tell you, I've met some of the most visionary men um, who understand that women have to have equal access and be a part of the conversation to move their communities forward. Nice. And so it's been a a really wonderful place to work. I mean, I had to pay, you know, I, I was definitely set up to fail a few times by a couple of people. And Um, I had to, you know, really be a good, respectful listener, which I am anyway, and I try to be, but I mean, definitely push my, you know, had to really push myself to not say ridiculous things. Um, Like, for example, so we're in, we trained our first peer counselors. We have a, a, our part of our uh, leadership development initiative is also a team of peer counselors, right? So what I knew was, that women who had issues, whether it's their business or being in the group or something at home, coming into an office and talking to staff is, can be intimidating, right? So, we, so, I, so my, my kids were peer counselors in high school. I was like, that is such a great idea. I'm going to do that. So I created this whole program around peer counseling. And when we trained 18 peer counselors, and this was in 2008. And, you know, in the training. It was, they were talking about how they had to like really tell their men or husbands, whatever, that, you know, I want to go to this training on Saturday. You have to stay home with the kids. I'm going to be gone all day. And they had to keep telling them. And they were, they were kind of saying this. And, you know, in my head, I'm like, okay, well, just tell them to F off and get over it that you're going to go somewhere for the day. Like, really? You know, it's like, you know, in my own Western head, I'm yeah, like, yeah. Oh. yeah. And but but this is this is how they are navigating, right? Like you know, taking advantage of opportunities and moving forward and creating autonomy and and it works. And now, you know, um, we have an example of a client who will tell the story about, you know, she was in the market, in her stall in the very beginning, she's one of our most successful clients. Um, her, but in the beginning, her husband and in-laws were just so opposed. Right. And her husband came to the market, dragged her home, <gasps> made a big scene, dragged her home, said, you're not going back. And she said, oh, no, I'm going back and went back. And now he he ended up becoming one of our biggest fans, because what happens is he sees his kids going to school consistently. Mm-hmm. He sees food on the table. He sees his partner or wife happier. Right. He doesn't feel so much pressure. Right. And all of a sudden, the weight goes off. Like, okay, this is a good thing for everybody. Uh-huh. It's a win-win. And th- if you look at global data, it will show you that in the beginning, there's often pushback when a woman enters any kind of empowerment program, depending how culturally conservative, you know, her community is. But the longer and more successful she is, the more acceptance and change that happens. And I, I'm, that is definitely true. That is definitely true for us. Um, and also working in a post-conflict region, although it had its really uh, serious challenges, absolutely for sure. Um, but it also is this opportunity to go someplace that had been completely dismantled. There were no institutions working. There were no, there was no infrastructure. And everybody was very focused on finding a way forward and finding a brighter future and finding opportunities. So very, they were very willing to come in and listen to what we had to say and what we had to offer. 
Oh, God. And, um, <clears throat> yeah. Good for you. So, in a way, I had no idea that working in a post-conflict region, I did not know that was going to be one of the benefits. Um, and, it, and it ended up being one of the benefits. So brilliant. So, I need to ask... How yeah. can people help? What can what can we do to help uh, your organization and help those help more women? Um, well, we we find ourselves with um, uh, funding shortages this year. It's kind of happened this year, but for 2020, so we do need we do need women and others, including men. But I need some good sisters around me. I cannot do this on my own. I can't raise all the money I need. I can't write all the grants I need to write, right? Like I, I am inundated and we need new supporters and donors. And I'm also planning a trip to go and I'm going to take a few people with me. So if anyone's interested in going in April to Uganda with me, um, they're going to have to work in the HPI lab, which we haven't talked about, but the healthy period. initiative. I, I know I, that's on my list too. So, okay, good. So, so, you know, they'll work in the HPI lab and they'll get to go visit with, you know, farmers and eat in restaurants owned by our clients. And it will be a fantastic trip. So I'm kind of putting that together, which just came about in the last couple of weeks. So huh, interesting. that's kind of exciting. I mean, you yeah. know, it's, it's definitely an interesting trip. So get your mosquito net out and, <laughs> uh, and it's going to be really fun. But uh, that, you know, so those are a couple ways. Um, Sounds good. Introducing us to your community, right? Yeah, yeah. Like contact me. I'll send you. I'll send you information. I'll have a conversation with you and introduce us to your community. You know, we just had. I have young people all the time do bake sales and they'll do a concert or it's you know really sweet. Like that's I I love working with like teenagers and stuff and they always come up with really creative ways to like help us. That's awesome. Um, and I'll share so, all of all of your websites and all of that stuff are in the show notes for those of you listening. Go there after you finish listening, and uh, and there'll be ways to contact. So before we go, I do want to hear about the HPI real quick. I know it's so amazing. So um, I was contacted by one of our donors in Scotland, a man who said, "Have you heard of this man in India who created these machines that's making a local sanitary pad?" It's amazing. I really think you could do it. Well, we had no funding and it took me, it took me five years really to get it wow. up and running and, uh, you know, to buy the machine, ship it over from India. My program director went to India to learn about it, learn on it. Um, so it's been, it was a long trajectory getting there, right? But it is not hard to understand. You know, women in the global South, um, women in under-resourced communities cannot afford proper sanitary products and oftentimes used rags, newspapers, magazines, oh, mattress buttings, what leaves, whatever they can find. Okay. So this is unsanitary, undignified, and it's unacceptable to me. Right. So I committed to this years ago and finally got it up and running. So we are creating a locally made, locally sourced sanitary product. There's a micro enterprise by our young mothers group for uh, young women with babies that don't have an education. This is their business now. So they've created a whole local economy around this. And we also have provided almost 3 million pads to 16 schools monthly across the region. Wow. We want girls to stay in school. It's all free. 
We also take a doctor with us so they can ask questions and learn about their bodies. This is the only time they probably get to see a doctor. Um, so we do full reproductive health care training, um, you know, including t uh, pregnancy prevention. And every month we drop uh, sanitary products to 16 schools across the region. We partner with a newly graduated doctor from the medical school up there. So we give her an opportunity to start working in her community. And we also provide three refugee camps when they're full, when they're when it's when they're when it's necessary, um, with products as well. And the first time I went into this camp in South Sudan, we ran into a little girl named Christine who fled her country because of violence. She got separated from her family. She was in this refugee camp by herself and she got her period and mm. she had no idea what it even was. Oh, no. And somebody gave her a somebody gave her a rag and said, Here you go. And that refugee camp had not gotten any sanitary product delivery for over a year. And this little girl, there's a quote, it's on our website somewhere. And she says, it's hard. I can't clean it because we often don't even have soap. Oh, 70% of reproductive health care issues is because of poor menstrual hygiene. And the number three reason girls drop out of school is because they get their period. So you see a huge drop off in, you know, between ages 13 to 15 in schools because women, young girls can't manage their menstrual health. Um, and then another beautiful thing, and then I will stop talking, <laughs> is we have expanded this to include boys. I love it. So now, now we are including boys in our school-based program we are lifting the shame and stigma and enabling girls the dignity and the ability to focus on their studies and not their periods. And now boys support their sisters. Amen. And can I read you one quick quote? Because Please. it's amazing. Yes. Okay. In our class, the boys are not shy to help a girl who have soiled or girls who have soiled their uniforms. It is no longer a laughing matter. Oh. When I see a girl <laughs> Sorry. Okay, sorry. Um, when I see a girl who has soiled her dress, I quickly give her my sweater to cover up and direct her where she has to go to the changing room and who to talk to the teacher, said David at a primary school. Oh, that's beautiful. And, you know, this is changing girls' lives, right? Yeah, literally. Yeah, And absolutely. it's not rocket science. No, it's not. So we want to grow this program. We want to expand it to more schools in other regions. Um, we want to make sure we offer this opportunity. And we want to keep girls in school longer, reducing child marriage, and giving them the opportunity they desire and that they deserve. This is a human rights issue, yeah. right? This is yeah. not a luxury item. This is a human rights issue. And it's about dignity. Amen. Okay. Man. I love that. I mean, I just, I, you know, you're so, you're so passionate about what you do. And, and obviously that's part of the reason why this program has been so successful. So I just, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that I had a chance to talk to you on the show because what you're doing, I mean, literally life changing. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it is. it's, it's inspiring. really important to do this work. Yeah. I mean, I have met so many amazing women. And when you think you have problems or your dryer breaks, 
whatever. I don't know. Right. And like none of that is is real. No, That's it's not, not real. No, you it's can be not. bummed for a minute. Like I still get mad at stupid shit all the time, right? Right. But but when you when you have the opportunity with, with to work with women who work so hard every day just to move forward a little bit, right? Yeah. Just to pay their kids school fees, just to, you know, create a brighter future, more stability. And how hard they work and how joyful and generous they are. It, it you know, I'm I'm inspired every day. I'm yes. inspired every day. Wow, yeah. I can hear it in your voice. It's just it's such a <laughs> it's such a a great cause and, and uh, you're making such a huge difference. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm so glad we got to do this. Thanks for keeping up with me and and, yeah. and allowing me to talk to your audience. Absolutely. I really no, I, I uh, this is this has been absolutely awesome. So, um, folks, again, check the show notes. Go to their website. There's all kinds of great resources. Lots of awesome stories. Lots of uh, lots of showcasing a lot of fantastic women who are doing great stuff over there. Thanks to this organization. And Karen, again, thank you so so much. Not just for being on the show, but for all you do. Thank you. Yay! We'd love to hear your thoughts or feedback. Or if you're an outstanding woman or know an outstanding woman, reach out at gfweneedtotalk at gmail.com. That's gfweneedtotalk at gmail.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.